Hello and welcome to Paramedicast. Our guest today is Martin McTeague. Martin joined London Ambulance Service in 1986. He progressed through the ranks working first as an operations manager, then later as head of business development. In 2015, Martin started making weekly trips to the refugee camp known as the Calais Jungle. Here he formed a clinic to serve the medical needs of 8,000 migrants. He has also worked extensively in sea rescue. He advises the UK lifeboat charity, the RNLI, on mass casualty rescues and he is a trustee of the NGO Atlantic Pacific. I met Martin in January on a rescue ship, CI4. He was leading a month-long maritime operation to rescue migrants attempting to reach Europe from Libya. So Martin, welcome to Paramedicast. Great to have you here. Thank you. So let's get straight into the question. So you obviously started working for London Ambulance Service. Why did you decide to become a paramedic in the first place? Uh, I think it was a question of it finding me more than me finding it. So I'd, uh, on leaving school, I got into retail uh, and wasn't really enjoying being the being inside the whole time. So I did a small bit of travelling uh, for a few months to Greece and came back and uh, was was looking for something else with no firm idea what that something else was. Uh, and I saw an advert in the London Evening Standard and they were looking for ambulance staff. Uh, so I applied and I went for an assessment and an interview. I just remember being struck by the environment I was in. So I was in the London Ambulance Service HQ, which was a training school at the time. I did the assessments and I was sitting around chatting with people who were on training courses. And I just, I was struck by a sense of, there was a real sense of purpose towards what they were doing. It was very organised. There was an outdoor element to it. So there was freedom and I think just combined, even in those early stages, I could see that there was a sense of family. I was successful uh, and I applied and I ended up in uh, late 86 working at uh, Chelsea Ambulance Station, which is now the Conran restaurant in the King's Road. Yeah. And then 34 years later, I stopped working for them. So uh, it was a very short, it was very, it turned out what was I planned to be a short period of time working for them was a very long one. I'm going through the interview process at the moment for Southwest Ambulance Service and I bet it looks a lot different to your interview process can you remember any of the questions or anything that you had oh yeah so it was all it was generally around how I would how I would react to certain situations a lot of it was scenario based a lot was it have you ever and it was a very different ambulance service then and the term paramedic hadn't been invented so it was classic question is always why would you join an organization that deals with people in pain and suffering it's interesting and it is a good question actually yeah yeah, and I think it's still one uh, in my latter career. I did a lot of interviewing, and I think that was a question we still ask. So get it, uh, wait, you, you'll probably be asked that one. So you said you've worked for LAS for, was it 34 years in total? Yeah. So could you just give us an overview of your career with them? I joined initially as uh, what was termed an EMT, uh, which is an emergency medical technician. Uh, I was working in London, doing shift work on an ambulance. That was from 86 to probably... 89, 90. And then the term paramedic started being introduced. Uh, and then so the BSc in paramedic science came out, was adopted, and then I did a conversion course for that at Hatfield University. So moving on from that, I was probably an operational paramedic for 17 years. I remember sitting outside a hospital in autumn 
thinking, oh, I need to put a sweater on tomorrow because it's getting cold. And then I realised that my life was being played out in front of, in the front of an ambulance just looking around. And I was really ready then to uh, become a team leader. So I applied for promotion uh, and then was successful. I went on a course and I did that. I had a team of eight people and I did that for a very short period of time, for six months. And then uh, an opportunity came to be a station officer. So I applied for that and was successful and had two and a half years in Brixton Ambulance Station. I loved, absolutely loved it. It was such a vibrant area to work in. Uh, And then it kind of was a natural progression. So from a station officer becomes an area manager. It's it's termed a commander. It's rather grand, but in fact, it's, it's an area manager. That was in northeast London. I was there for four years before getting the opportunity to move away from operations. Uh, and I moved into contracting first. So work, I gave the experience of working with the uh, NHS England, so the bigger uh, providers, about working out a contract, what we needed to do, negotiations. And then that moved on to we uh, London Ambulance Service looked at uh, developing a revenue generating arm and so I worked with them on that we were using our skills and reputation to deliver first state work training courses for example um, we had some notable successes with that then moved on to uh, the 111 system came in the system designed to look after urgent but non-emergency calls. So I led on the South East London 111 and introduced that to the ambulance service. And then in the latter years, I then moved into uh, um, North East London. And then uh, after some time doing that, I ended up uh, looking after governance and assurance and risk for the ambulance service. Uh, and again, that was about understanding what's happening, if, if things go wrong, learning from the experiences to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And that's not on an individual basis, that was on a corporate basis. How did the ambulance service improve its services? And that was the government insurance and obviously risk management. It was very, I guess you could argue I had two careers within the ambulance service. I had a career uh, as a paramedic, which taught me amazing things, um, and I really enjoyed it. But then the second part of my career was as a manager. It was a completely different skills I learned and was able to uh, employ, you know, employ now. I do advisory work for the RLI and things like that. And it's all based on what I learned in the ambulance service. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing to hear it, that you've done so much in such a varied career over such a long time. Um, just moving back, so you said that you're an area manager for North East London. Can you give us a sense of what was involved in that role, what your sort of average week looked like? Did you have a patient-facing role, for example? So the uh, I think like any big organisation, the more you become involved in policy and procedure, the less patient contact time you have. And that was always a big struggle. So I had 500 people in the north in in the northeast. It was my job to ensure that they were trained. It was my job to ensure that they had all the relevant kit for the role. It was my job to ensure that they turned up and looking after their welfare as well. So, uh, But I had a team of people beneath me to do that. So you had a station officer in every station. I had five stations. But the other element of it was the outward facing stuff. So it's much more work with the medical groups that govern a particular area. And they're all split across London. And there were a lot of KPIs and key performance indicators, what we agreed in the contract that we were going to deliver, uh, how many calls we responded to, category one calls within seven minutes, how many responded to within 19 minutes. And there was a measure on that. So it was much more 
outward facing. Uh, so there was a day-to-day housekeeping that I was uh, responsible for, but my team looked after that. And then when you're working in the business development side of things, you know, with governance and assurance and risk, what about that? What did that look like day-to-day? So governance is what we we should be doing. The assurance was understanding that it was being done. The quality, there is a quality element to that. And so it's ensuring that we are delivering a good service. So that would be understanding stakeholder groups. So all the groups that we touch on within our, our working lives, so hospitals, NHS trusts, patient groups, the fire service, the police service, the uh, Coast Guard, the RNLI. There's, there's a, a number of people we come into contact with. Uh, primary care, so local GPs, uh, local nursing homes. And so it's all about how we tie up the systems that we use and then how we tweak them to meet the needs of the local area. Well, thanks for explaining that, because um, it's always seemed like a bit of a dark art to me, the whole governance and assurance <laughs> side of things. You explained it really clearly. <laughs> Thank you. I think you mentioned when we were first speaking about your job that you were working during the 7-7 bombings in London. Yes. Was that? I was going to ask about your particularly memorable days during LAS, and I imagine that was one of them. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question because it's um, there's a lot of them. <laughs> I've had a lot of memorable days. And I think, yeah, 7-7 was unique. Uh, I was involved in a few other major incidents in London. Uh, there was a, the Labour Grove train crash, was fairly significant. I was with the second ambulance on scene as a paramedic then. Uh, huge learnings come from that. Yeah, I was at 7-7 uh, Russell Square for uh, a whole day. And latterly, in terms of big incidents, I was at the Westminster Bridge um, attack as well. Your training kicks in, in truth. If we, if you have enough major incident training, which we did, we had a, an emergency planning team and every paramedic would be certified one yearly on the major incident plan, what to do. And when you're in that environment, your training kind of kicks in. The major incident, by definition, is chaotic for the first hour. And you deal with that chaos in the best way you can by being the mouthpiece. So uh, you're the eyes on the scene, you're relaying all the information back to our control, uh, and that's being picked up by uh, the the more senior team. And uh, for for your listeners, if they don't know, uh, a major incident exercise, sorry, incident is set up on uh, three levels of command, in effect. You have the gold group who sit, and they're normally very senior managers. There'll be uh, directors of operation, medical directors, They'll collate all the information that's coming into uh, into the command centre and they will then make appropriate choices in, in in what to do. And that's things like liaising with COBRA. So the COBRA is a significant incident, so the, the government briefing room. Uh, they'll liaise with the rest of the NHS. They'll bring in additional resources from other ambulance services if needed. They'll use the army if needed. And they'll liaise with the police and the fire services as well. Uh, that's on a strategic basis. So they can they have the authority to release funds to put additional resources in and things. The next group down in that in that system is the silver group. So they're the tactical people. Sometimes they'll be on scene, other times they'll be in the command center, and they'll be making the tactical decisions about who to send where. And they'll collate all the information and make decisions on that. And they'll bring up to gold. And then you have the bronze team of uh, officers or managers, and they will be on site. And they have uh, there's five or six specific roles uh, within that. The most important one being, curiously, parking. So you'll have a parking officer because 
one thing that will turn things to chaos is everyone arriving, parking, and leaving their vehicle and going to the site, and then you can't get anybody out. And so the bronze system of management is super important, and that starts from uh, you'll have bronze uh, forward officers, so they'll do triage. Uh, then you'll have a, a manager or officer that set up a clearing station where people are treated. Then you'll have... Uh, a vehicle liaison officer who will arrange for vehicles to come in at given places and then the key role about the parking officer as well and then you have a safety officer so safety officer's remit is to look at it all so it's um whilst chaotic uh, for the first hour or so when more resources arrive then one starts making sense of it so yeah i was involved in a lot of that but i think looking back over my period i think there's no one specific thing that stands out. Lots of different things stand out. And I think what I touched on earlier, the, the reason I joined the Admiral Service was this purpose. So at every stage of my career, I worked with people that really wanted to make a difference and change things, uh, whether that's from a clinical perspective or that's from a, a corporate perspective. I always felt that we were achieving something. We were doing something. And it was, it was something quite great. I think that's what I'm. That's the memory I have of leaving the ambulance service in my time there. It was, um, you know, one can use cliches about privilege, but I think it was. I was super lucky. I was in the forefront, doing stuff and creating stuff and making stuff uh, fit for the future. It's nice to look back at some of the stuff I actually formed with new younger people doing it. That's brilliant. It's amazing to hear that you've the way that you viewed the ambulance service right from being a paramedic on the front line and all the way up to the leadership and especially you know with your experience of major incidents you started as you say as second ambulance on scene all the way up to a leadership role um so you've really seen it at all levels yeah yeah, yeah. i'd like to move on to a few questions about your humanitarian and rescue work and i think we should just start by saying that these are our views that we're going to express here and views as, our, as us as individuals and not representatives of the organizations we'll talk about because obviously the situations that we'll be discussing are quite politically sensitive. Indeed. So I'll first ask you about the Calais jungle, which you were working in in 2015. Why and sort of how did you start working there? So uh, so again, a very good friend of mine, uh, Sam Ballou, he worked for the Amber Service as well, and he was involved in a charity called Hands International. And they were predominantly set up to support the earthquakes in Nepal. Uh, they had built schools. Speaking with him, he was telling me about the refugee camp that had sprung up in Calais. Initially, the camp started as a, as an out, government outbuilding called Songat, and that was used to house uh, displaced people. But I think it was about 500 people. The camp grew around the old Songat, some miles away, four or five miles away. Um, and it was set in the dunes of the huge beach that runs from Calais to Dunkirk. And there were about 6,000 people uh, there when it came to Sam's notice. So Sam, myself, and another colleague from the ambulance service went over there for a day. We had a look. We saw immediately with that level of that number of people, with the level of uh, infrastructure they had, um, they really need uh, a clinic. We, in a hugely short space of time, this is in October 2015, and we met some architects there. And within a week, we had built a clinic. Uh, we had met some amazing architects from Ireland who helped us. And an architect who was a refugee themselves living in the camp from Sudan. But they designed and built our clinic. 
And one of the so the two of the big concerns we had, leaving aside the primary care elements, were infection. So we we decided that we were going. Our predominant aim was inoculations. So we gave uh, flu initially, flu jabs, and we moved then moved on to giving measles jabs. There was a measles outbreak. It was uh, we were very lucky. We approached the Calais Ministry of Health uh, and uh, explained what we were doing. We met them. We showed them the clinic. They were very supportive, and that really helped because that gave us access to the hospital where we could use the hospital pharmacy to store the flu vaccinations. It gave us access to you know, get rid of our sharp herbs, so our clinical waste. Uh, and so that was, a, that was a really good partnership. And then that's what I should have added as well. This also included a camp uh, called Grand Synth in Dunkirk. So there was one in Calais called The Jungle and one in, uh, in Dunkirk. And that was uh, conditions there were far, far worse than they were in Calais. So we did. We ran both sites. One was a mobile site from the back of my car and a tent um, in, in Dunkirk. And over a four-month period, we inoculated 6,000 people. And we used off-duty paramedics, volunteer paramedics from London and elsewhere, to come over on their day off uh, and stay for a few days and, and deliver, deliver that sort of healthcare. And it, it, in addition as well, uh, all the sorts of minor problems uh or major problems in some cases that people in transit experience the overwhelming thing often was just uh foot problems uh scabies because people are not having access to clean clothes and clean water and things exposure upper respiratory tract infections things like that from people being exposed to just the, the uh pollution the whole time there yeah, so there, there was just a rush. And then your epileptics, your diabetics, your pregnant females, your tiny problems, all the sorts of things that you would expect in a small village, I guess, or a small town of 6,000 people. The best way to describe Calais and Dunkirk would be the, the worst of worlds and the best of worlds. It was, uh, it was it was a very strict regime they lived under. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of negativity from far-right groups and attacks on refugees there in far-right groups. There was a lot of tear gassing going on. So it was very difficult, and the and the conditions themselves in winter were very squalid. There was uh, when I got there, I think there were four taps in the whole camp for six thousand people, and that got better as more NGOs came in. But it was the resilience of the refugees there was amazing. Whilst they had nothing, they gave everything. Their hospitality was legendary. I I dined out regularly with refugees in their tents and their and their shacks. Just the generosity and, and the friendship they showed us was it was incredible. It was incredible. And they, they built a small town. You had a church there. You had a mosque there. All built out of pallets. You had restaurants there. You had shops there. There was an afternoon market every day where people bartered for things. Whilst it was very difficult, it was actually quite a joyous place to be in. It sounds like you really enjoyed working there. It was a great thing. And I think, you know, uh, being in a position to give something back is uh, super important. And I, again, I work with some amazing people. Yeah. I think about 21 months after it was formed, the Calais jungle was demolished. Were you still involved at this point? And Yeah, yeah. Was... so that was uh, that was happening sort of February, March 16. Uh, so we were still there. They demolished the camp in section. And the south section, 
uh, was the bit where we operated it. That was the first to go, and it was uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty heartbreaking. It was it was pretty heartbreaking. Uh, so many people were displaced. We stayed a little longer in Dunkirk because that was less in the spotlight because it was a smaller camp. So we stayed there for a little while, and in to all intents and purposes, our role there when the camp went, our role disappeared. Uh, and in a way, it's a good thing uh, because the uh, the authorities offered uh, the refugees uh, a lifeline and a journey out. However, since there, there's still a, a very active refugee community in Calais, um, but they just don't have the infrastructure of a, a camp. They're, they just camp in forests where they can and things. So it's much more ad hoc and much more difficult. Yeah, and I imagine it's probably quite unlikely that anything like that will be constructed again. No, I think you're right. I, I think you're right. Times have moved on and the patterns of people moving has changed as well. Although there is still uh, significant activity in Calais for people that want to come to the UK, whether there's a colonial element to that, post-colonial element to that, uh, whether they have English as a language, often they'll have family here and they'll aspire to come to here to sort of meet those needs, which is um, great. Yeah, but very politically charged, obviously. It is very politically charged, yeah. But I hold out hope for the uh, for everybody that um, society is a good thing, as opposed to sometimes it feels like a bad thing. So, uh, yeah, I hold out hope for human nature and the humanitarian streak in, in us all, really. I'm very hopeful. So my next question is about search and rescue and how you moved into maritime search and rescue. So how did you first become involved? So I have a background in sailing and uh, I have a small boat in Portsmouth. From a number of years, I did some um, sailing at a competitive level. So racing is a lot of rock stuff, um, Royal Offshore Racing uh, Club. And I was, I love the sea. So when I came back from Calais, I was looking around and I came across an organisation, an NGO called Atlantic Pacific. So history very quickly is after the tsunami in Japan, in Kamaishi, they built uh, a lifeboat, uh, a rib, and they put it in a uh, shipping container and took it out to Kamaishi and set up a lifeboat station uh, there and sent people out to train people in search and rescue. So what they also did is they trained people in the UK to uh, on search and rescue also. So I joined them for what they term their summer school. That was 2017, I would guess. And then it just clicked. So the search and rescue training was based on using ribs on the British Channel in, in Wales. Um, but the, the other element of the search and rescue training was casualty care. And casualty care is a, is a system of uh, triage and patient assessment that uses algorithms and prompt cards. Very, very straightforward uh, and really good way to deliver advanced um, advanced healthcare and advanced triage. I did that course with them in Wales and following the people I met in Wales on the search and rescue course were immersed in the NGO world. So whilst there was, uh, there was an awful lot of activity in Greece at the time, specifically uh, in uh, refugees moving from Turkey over into Greece, I did some, for a short space of time, I was in uh, Thessalonica and Athens doing some medical work, uh, medical outreach work uh, in camp there. And then I spent some time 
in Mytilene, uh, which is in Lesbos, uh, which was the, the area then, which was the closest island to Turkey, and they saw the biggest number of boats coming over. So I worked in a camp called Moria for, for a brief time as well, for an NGO. And then through meeting people, I learned more and more about the NGO activity in regards to, res uh, to refugee rescue and the search and rescue, sea rescue and connected with a charity called Sea Watch. And Sea Watch uh, are a big organization that had a big ship. Uh, and I worked with them as a medic for uh, four trips. And then was contacted by Sea Watch, who uh, introduced me to CI, who were looking for medics at draw notice. One of their medics had, had been able to, to, to come. Uh, and I found myself at the time, and I went and did a mission uh, with as a medic with CI, which was 470 people we rescued in a, in a period of uh, three days. So it was pretty full on. And then I've continued with CI, and now the, the last mission I did with CI, uh, I was asked to be their head of mission, uh, and that went very well. And again, taught me taught me other things I needed to know. So yeah, it was it was really marrying my my love for the sea and my me being a mariner with the fact that because I'd seen what I saw in Calais, it's very hard to unsee that. Uh, and then I think most people that do that, this type of NGO work will always go back and do more when they see a need. So it, it married two things up really. So. Uh, I became a medic at sea, it's all intents and purposes. And we should just explain for people that, so in these later missions that you did with CI and Sea Watch, that was month-long missions at sea, where you travel to a region like uh, the coast of Libya and search for people and then take them to the nearest land in Europe. In, indeed, yeah. So it's uh, these are big ships. They're generally old cargo ships that have been converted for this both sea watch and ci and they operate they're ger both german ngos and they operate in the mediterranean they steam down to just outside the international uh, waters of libya they take part in rescue patterns uh, to look for boats that are in distress and it's worth noting at this point any boat any flimsy rubber boat uh, with a lot of people in it, uh, has to be. It can only be classes in distress due to the nature of what may happen very quickly. And the people on them are suffering from significant health issues even before they get onto the boat, and having lived in Libya uh, or being stuck in Libya for a long period of time. So there's a real need. There's a real need for that sort of response there. Uh, and then have the capacity to take on up to maybe 500 people and i've experienced that level of that number of people both the ships have two roofs uh which are uh rigid hull inflatable boats you know once a boat in distress has been identified we will respond to that we will, the two ribs will go out to the boat in distress we'll calm everything down we'll distribute life jackets and then piece by piece we'll bring the refugees off that boat onto the ship and then having to feed people, both people, communicate with people, because there's a number of different languages spoken on, on every refugee boat, take care of their medical needs. So both CI and Sea Watch have uh, three or four medics uh, on board to take care of the health, uh, the health needs. And then in effect, 
give them the support they need whilst on board, not only the initial search and rescue, the food, warmth, clothing, shelter, but also uh, to make them feel human again, to make them, to interact with them on the same level, to interact with them on a human level, or to have them as objects. So the big drive for all the NGOs is for that window of time whilst uh, the refugees are on board with us, they get treated like human beings, uh, which is really important. Uh, there's a number of uh, there's a number of uh, NGO assets or NGO uh, boats in the area. Any one given time, there's always a rescue asset within um, within the area of Libya. Uh, we then, once the rescue has taken place, if we're comfortable, there's no other boats in distress, then we uh, apply to uh, the nearest port of safety, which in essence is Italy. So it could be Lampedusa, it could be the Italian mainland is governed and monitored by a Rome. So it's the uh, Maritime Rescue Coordination Centre, MRCC. And they monitor all the rescues and they determine uh, which port of safety that the refugees are taking. Yeah, thank you. That's a really good overview. And we should also say that it's highly technical work that's being done by these NGO rescue ships. And it's operating within quite a hostile situation as well. There's hostility both from... Libyan actors and and European authorities as well so it's it's quite difficult to carry out these rescues so you've worked mainly as a paramedic and then later on as a head of mission so can you just give us an idea of the role of the paramedic on the ship uh one thing I will say just on the your your last comment all NGOs act within the UNHCR law uh of solus law on saving lives at sea so we work. The framework we work in is legal and obligatory when we're there. So we, uh, it's our it's a mariner's or seafarer's responsibility when they know about a situation under UN law to attempt to save lives at sea. So life as a medic is uh, is interesting. So the initial uh, role really is to make the rest of the crew aware of what we do through training. For training for medical situations so cpr uh, and life support is big uh, and that's the moving from the new crew arriving on scene would be the medic's responsibility to train people to respond to any incidents uh, that, they, that, that they may come across that being said uh, the medics are pretty well on 24-hour call as well uh, at any time for any incidents so training is big uh things very practical training, such as manual handling, how to put someone on a stretcher, how to use a stretcher, how to put someone in the recovery position, how to lift someone who is conscious to assist the walking, how to lift someone who is unconscious to get them onto a stretcher, uh, CPR scenarios that the crew will come across. So if someone comes unconscious, what do they do? If someone faints, what do they do? If someone uh, is having any mental health episodes... Um, all the things that the medics will give an overview of to the rest of the crew. And specifically, uh, there is a hospital. It's, it's probably best more described as a clinic. It will have two or three beds with one central uh, one central bed with monitoring equipment attached to, uh, say blood pressure, pulse oximetry, fibrillator and ETG, for example. And the role really is to respond in the rescues as eyes and ears in effect so the medic troll on a rescue will be to do a visual triage using AFCU 
on the boat, uh, on the on the rib, the initial, which is why it's always a great idea to have a medic or even a paramedic on board because they have much more exposure to that sort of um, that sort of environment. So it will be understanding the condition of our patients, uh, and it will determine then what our action will be. So if we have if we have uh, what could be considered a normal rescue or a routine rescue uh, where people will be fairly well they'll come back to the boat they'll be uh, ambulatory and they'll be assisted back on board and then it's a question of uh, just doing a very quick visual check and then following up at a later stage with a, a, an assessment the other thing of course is we in, in order to uh, meet uh, requirements of the authorities we need to ensure that everyone is given uh, a brief medical check if you've got 500 people on board, that's kind of tough, but it aids the next step. The type of things medics are going to see is exposure, I would say, is the worst of it, whether that's good weather or bad weather, sun or rain. They could be on a boat for up to six days. They uh, often have uh, issues that they bring, they had already whilst they were in Libya, and that could be sepsis through old wounds, Gunshot wounds are not uh, unknown. With female refugees, they'll have generally there'll be some with pregnancies, uh, ongoing pregnancies. There'll be a lot of gynecological issues uh, due to the nature of their life in Libya, often being uh, exposed to assault. Uh, there'll be children. They're often due to the due to the uh, actions of the, the uh, rubber boat at sea, which is overcrowded with people. You'll have seawater mixing with fuel which will be really crazy. So people can get quite nasty fuel burns on the on their backs, on their legs, and uh, the groin area, which are a big deal for, um, for, for medics. And the exposure thing leads to a general feeling of being unwell. So until someone has warmth, has clothing, has comfort, has food, has engagement, it's really difficult. So lots of people will want medics' attention on the ship just to get some reassurance just to get something to, to make them feel better uh, and that's often done through conversations as opposed to direct medical in interventions but the medics role is really varied it's also good in that you, you see your patient coming on board and if you're on board with them for a few days you see the beginning the middle and the end and the end is um and it's joyous to see if someone comes on board for example with difficult fuel burns that meant they couldn't walk or to significant exposure that means they can't walk to see them walking off the ship sometime later with a smile on their face is um is hugely rewarding absolutely um you've given us a really good overview there what are the operational differences of working on a ship compared to working on land so i think the intensity uh the intensity is there so most most medical uh interactions take place with a clinician and a patient on a ship where there are different languages spoken that changes and widens and what you'll find is the one-on-one -on -one patient experience is much more difficult you'll introduce an interpreter for example you will introduce there will be three patients in the hospital um, being dealt with by three medics simultaneously so the one-on-one -on -one element is, is, is less it's made more difficult by the language problem and made more difficult by the limitations that a medic has. So, for example, we have a hospital. 
But if we find ourselves in a prolonged cardiac arrest scenario, that means all the medics are taken out of, of that environment. So one needs to be really careful about triaging. Triaging becomes uh, mu much more significant on board. And we have resources. So we can't go book an x-ray. We can't, we can start a treatment protocol, but very often if it's a burns, the people need to be in a, in a much more hygienic environment um, than a ship at sea. So many vacs, many vacs are always an option to get people to the place where they really need to be. Other difficulties are you're on a moving platform and people will have different experiences. I've the last mission I did, I was uh, weather was difficult. The weather was difficult. We were we were seeing a very 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 strong northerly winds in the Mediterranean, which is very rare, and we were also seeing quite big swells, so four and a half five meter swells. And then you have the additional issue of every well, a lot of people becoming seasick. But medics or or crew aren't um, immune to that either. So crew can get seasick too and that's pretty miserable and you're seasick and still working so yeah, the difficulties uh, it's a it's a very confined space the ship is a very very confined space uh and that can have that can have effect on your mental health your well mental well-being in that if you're used to trying to have time on your own and all that uh, privacy goes out of the window then that's something one needs to cope with uh, and learn to cope with the NGOs are very aware of this, and they they talk for you know, quite significant briefing. But um, if you if you're used to if you're used to having your life in a in an ordered fashion, it certainly doesn't happen on ships <laughs> during a rescue. So it's a, yeah, the intensity of it, I think, and then the need to be more flexible within within that environment. Yeah, gosh, lots to think about. Which of your paramedic skills were you most? Did you find that you were most relying on? Triage. And a paramedic's learned behaviour about how you communicate in difficult circumstances and mass casualty circumstances. The triage is critical. Medics, paramedics are used to dealing with high intensity with more than one casualty. Uh, and I think that's, for me, that's a critical, a paramedic is a critical ingredient to have on a, on a rescue ship alongside with the rest of the medical team. Is because they're used to dealing with those intense situations using what they have before more backup comes. I think the paramedics training in dealing with difficult situations is important and super helpful on a ship. Yeah, and especially all your experience in major incidents, I bet that came in handy. Definitely, yes, definitely. What are the most memorable moments of your humanitarian work so far? My memories are the bravery of people that make that journey, the bravery of people that volunteer to go and work in that environment, uh, and the and the compassion that they show. One of the most rewarding things I saw was in Calais, the number of uh, friends we made in Calais of, who were refugees being granted asylum, moving to the country and starting their new life. I'm still in touch with a lot of them. And some have married, some have children, some have jobs, some have con everybody's contributing the society they wanted to join it was the seeing the end outcome of people having a a, a solid successful uh contributory lifestyle uh, whether that's in the uk whether that's in canada whether that's in france it's it's great to see it happen 
mem- memorable. Yeah, there's just that there's so many. It's just the it's the I suppose it's the noise and the intensity of having four hundred and seventy people around. Uh, if you have a hundred or a hundred people on board, everything is a conversation. We have 500 people aboard. Everything's okay, everyone. Now listen. So uh, it's just, a, and again, paramedics are really suited to that sort of environment in that they they know when they have to raise their voice and talk to a lot of people, and they're really good on a one-to-one basis. Yeah, they thrive on a bit of chaos. Oh, they we I think we all do. Yeah, we all do. <laughs> so you so you've spoken about some really rewarding aspects of this work. Have you found any parts of it very challenging? So in terms of, yes, so there's your own wellness. You need to be really uh, aware of the, uh, if you've got 500 people on board, level of fatigue that you experience is really significant and you're hoping that it's going to end soon. So I think the longest shift I've pulled is 22 hours uh, and the average shift is probably 15 to 18 hours when you're in this intense environment. So it's being able to manage that, well, being able to understand it and then to manage it. And the challenges are accepting that you can only do so much with what you've got. Lots of people's medical conditions will be very complex based on their experiences. Uh, And the other thing we haven't touched on really is mental health for refugees themselves. They are... Uh, to a large intent and purposes, broken people. They are the experiences that they've had in uh, Libya, for example, are really difficult. And sometimes that manifests itself. That's a manifests itself in behaviours on the ship, uh, behaviours on the ship that can be considered dangerous. But in everything, it's normally the crew have a briefing every day. These are the times that these issues get picked up with. Uh, so you'll have medics looking after the refugees, You'll have uh, a post-rescue coordinator whose job is to look after, a logistician. Uh, So it's about really good communication about what's happened, what's happening with particular individuals, with refugees, and what additional help they need. And so the medics are really good at briefing the rest of the crew. The crew are really good at briefing the medics. Most NGOs operate a deck watch system, so you'll always have crew on board to assist refugees 24 hours. And it's about getting that communication right. Definitely. So what skills and characteristics do you think paramedics need to contribute to this sector, to the humanitarian aid work that we've described here? So well, so I think, you know, I, I think I'll touch on the sort of the clear things about the advantages paramedics have from their training in really good effective communication skills, being able to lead in difficult situations. Happily, most paramedics, pretty all paramedics, have a pretty wry sense of humour. So they they're uh, they're up, they're much more accepting and understanding. But I think so. The role of a paramedic is really suited to this. The key elements of it are to be a humanitarian, to want to contribute, to being comfortable and recognizing when it's time to lead and then recognizing when it's not time to leave, when you can then just sit back and then do the one-on-one conversation with with patients. And I think, yeah, attitude. So being wanting to make a difference, wanting to do something important, and the your training will kick in and cover the rest. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, something that I found in finding a way into this sector is that there's not very many opportunities readily available. I think you have to sort of make your own opportunities and seek them out. I think in the UK, paramedics are trained to work within the UK ambulance system, but there's not, for example, elective placements like there are available to doctors and nurses. So would you have any advice to give to paramedics which are hoping to find a role in the humanitarian sector? Yeah, and I think I was, uh, as an example, I was supremely lucky in that I had very supportive managers, line managers. So our medical director was hugely supportive of what I was doing in Calais. And my uh, immediate line manager was as well. They knew about it. So it's about it's about the narrative that the paramedic um, comes to the workplace with. And ambulance workplaces are, in the whole, very flexible, very flexible. And a paramedic skill is very exportable as well. So for me, it was about having those conversations with my line managers and coming to an agreement, uh, now, uh, accepting that I was in a senior management position. I was given carte blanche to spend the time I needed to in Calais as long as I was doing my role within the, uh, my day job. Uh, and often it was driving out to Calais on a Friday evening, coming back on Wednesday, doing two days in the office, and then going back out on Friday evenings. Uh, so I think for any aspiring paramedics is to understand what they want to do, understand how they do it. There are a number of NGOs that they can work for. There are a number of NGOs Indigo Volunteers being one of them that has a really good handle on all vacancies within the NGO sector for refugees. And they will give you opportunities. And then if you define what you want to do, whether you want to work in a camp, whether you want to work at sea, is once that's determined, understand the requirements for it and the time requirements for it. And then there's a bit of negotiation. Um, then there's a bit of, if I have this month off, I can take some unpaid, I can take some paid leave. I can owe you some leave. I'll do Christmas for you. And conversations like that, face-to-face conversations like that, are really easy to do. Uh, and again, my experience with the London Admin Service, we had paramedics coming out to work with us from London in Calais. And it was, broadly speaking, it was being supported by their line managers. So there is, every organisation has a process for special leave. Um, and you can you can look at that process within your organisation to see if that's acceptable. Every organisation by law needs to be able to offer a career break. So there's lots of options you can look for. But for me, it was all just about having that conversation with my line manager. And bearing in mind, people in ambulance services are humanitarians as well. And if they see what you're doing, there's two elements to this. They're going to have empathy and they're going to understand it and be supportive. But actually, it's additionally, you will pick up new skills when you're involved in the NGO world that you can actually bring back into your practice. And I know people that have their HCPC uh, submissions now have an element of about refugee care. Yeah, and I would also guess that if paramedics were given these opportunities to go and work abroad for a period of time, they might go, but might be more likely to remain in the ambulance service for longer. Yeah, it's, it's a very good point. And I, I guess the other thing to look at is scholarships or, or funding for trips like this, which would, which which are available. And it's just it's, it's just working out where, where that comes from. But yeah, you're right. You will you will be a whole person and a far more clinically um, experienced person coming back from a refugee environment, um, and that will that will just flow back into your organisation you work for as a paramedic. Well, that's a very optimistic note to end on. 
I've finished my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I, I, I suppose thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, it's, it's very important. I would say to any paramedic that's looking to do this or has an interest in it, is do it. Do it. Um, and even if it's done on a, even if it's done on moving away from a statutory ambulance service, do it and then come back to a statutory ambulance service. There'll always be jobs in statutory ambulance services for, for a good paramedic. So yeah, I would say uh, do it. It's uh, it's hugely worthwhile. It's it's hugely fulfilling in, individually, and you you really put your skills good use uh, in a very very different environment. Brilliant. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Martin. My pleasure. Please consider donating to CI so it can carry on delivering life-saving rescues in the Mediterranean. You can find a link on the episode webpage.